Welcome back to another episode of Ecumenical. My name is Peter Holman. I want to thank you all for joining us today. We're going to talk about papal infallibility. Now, before we get started, I want to thank you all for showing up and engaging us wherever you can. We appreciate your comments and your insights and any questions you have. And honestly, if we can steer this based on your inputs, it's better for all of us involved. Um, wherever we can fill the void where we know catechesis is lacking, we're here to try and help you guys. And that's where we want to stay. So if you guys can help us in that with the comments or the questions or the ideas or the topics you need addressed, yeah, send them our way and we'll be happy to help. So if you like this video, smash the like button. If you want to keep engaging the channel and share this with other people, we would be most appreciative. And make sure to subscribe. All the subscribers, we appreciate it a lot. And again, however we can build good content for you all. So without further ado, papal infallibility. Now this one's from JL, gave a comment a few videos back and what I'm going to do today is let's answer that one. All right. So it sounds really weird from the standpoint of Protestants and Orthodox. Why do we have a Pope in the first place? Right. However, if we back up a little bit, we look at the old church. Let's look at what the Levitical law looked like under Moses. So Mosaic laws and what he came down from Mount Sinai. What did he have? He had his 10 commandments. He was set up as the judge over Israel. Now, in that role, he had the responsibility to deem what was good and what was bad. He had to look over the entire people. Okay, He was effectively the father. Now, we see that translated from Exodus and into Numbers. We see that show up again in the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 22. And I believe it's verse 20 is where it starts out. And it talks of Sabna uh, being removed and replaced with Eliakim. So a new father over the people of Israel and discussing a particular line, which we would find useful when we get to the New Testament, is talking about the keys to the kingdom. Whatever he binds and looses on earth and heaven, all that is in there, the keys, as well as we see him addressed as the father of the people. All right, well, that's kind of interesting. Let's move forward now. We go to, I'm going to go past the verse that I think you guys are all waiting for, Matthew 16, 18, and we'll go straight to Matthew 23, 2 and 3. This one's a big deal. Why? Because when Jesus is instructing the apostles, he's telling them, you're not all going to be independent to do whatever you want and go off in different directions. You're all part of my church, he's telling them. And my church has rules and my church has a structure, a hierarchy, and you will abide by it. And what does he tell them when he's talking about the teachers of the law? Well, in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3, we read the following. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' chair. His cathedra, by the way which is where the word cathedral comes from. So, Jesus continues, you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. All right, well, that's very interesting, because then if we go and back and look what he had said a few chapters earlier in Matthew 16, is where we see Peter get the keys to the kingdom. Anything he binds and looses, God will respect, because he is being set up there as the Pope. He is being set up there as the father, because what does Pope mean? It's Papa, it's father. That's the root word. What's his job? To rule vicariously, the vicar of Christ for Christ, right? Vicar of Christ, vicariously for Christ. It's all there. It all makes sense. Why would he do that? Because the problem is, is if we have a hundred different people or a thousand different bishops and all their priests, all interpreting all of the laws and teachings differently that had been given to us from Christ himself, what kind of chaos would that be? Because if we look now as an example at what we're seeing, let's just go with current priests and the confusion worldwide about what is good and what is bad and bishops here and there. 
Are we seeing unity in the doctrine? Are we seeing unity with Christ's teachings, an alignment and a faithfulness to tradition, the way it was handed to us 2,000 years ago? Or are we seeing some sort of digression, almost like some sort of rupture from the past, right? Therein lies the entire purpose for papal infallibility. He is to be the judge over the entire church in the stead of Christ, all right? So as a Catholic, we should all note this because it's in our catechism. And this is looking at, looks like the second edition. And we're talking about, I believe and we believe. So this is going along with the creed. And we're talking about divine revelation, all right? So in divine revelation, we address, and this is like, looks like number 74 all the way to 100. So these are the items in the catechism if you want to look them up. The point here being that we see scripture as one of the mechanisms for transmission of divine revelation, because that is infallible. There's no way to disagree with it or to argue with it. We see tradition that, again, it's apostolic tradition, which means it comes from the mouths and the teachings of the apostles, which was given to them by Jesus Christ, which means, again, also infallible. So these are things that Christ gave us. Everything he gives us is infallible. Well, another thing he also hands us is the magisterium, which is the authority of the church to be responsible for transmitting all of this information and deeming true teachings of Christ from false teachings, right? The magisterium, the true magisterium, reinforces everything that God gave to us because the church the Immaculate Bride of Christ, with her head, the Vicar of Christ, has the authority to stamp of approval the teachings of Christ or to deny false teachings of men that are posing as teachings of Jesus Christ. That magisterium comes up in, looks like, question 85, 86, and 87, and we move into dogmas in questions 89, 88, 89, and 90. So 88 through 90. Or if we want to back up and hit all of the magisterium and dogmas, it's 85 through 90. Why am I bringing this up? Because the magisterium is responsible for giving the authentic interpretation of all the teachings from Christ, the Word of God. There has to be some uniformity. Because if we all believe different things and we're all arguing with each other over what the truth is, then the next thing you know, we're all Protestants, all disagreeing as to what the core of our faith is and what needs to be done in order for us to do all Christ commanded and to abide by James's law, which says do everything and don't be guilty of violating any part of the law because or else you're going to be guilty of violating all of it. We have to find a way to be perfect. Again, Paul says, be perfect, just men made perfect. Well, we can't be perfect in our execution of the instructions of Jesus Christ unless we all are practicing according to the same teachings and the same system of belief through and through, top to bottom, creation of the universe, the Trinity, the authority of the church. We're talking about how we live as Catholics, what our virtues are supposed to look like, what is vicious, and what ideologies are not Christian at all. We have to agree, right? This means... Someone somewhere in that church has to be able to put their foot down and give a final judgment, in the same way Moses did, to all of the faithful Catholics out there in clergy to say, this is Christ's word, Jesus Christ's word, final story, end of argument. If you disagree with this, you are an anthema. If we look through old councils, not Vatican II, and we didn't really hit it in Vatican I either, but older councils, there were anathemas. What are anathemas? It means that anyone who goes and adheres to things that are false and contradictory to church teachings, that means they're excluding themselves from 
the grace of God. They're excluding themselves from the church. They are excommunicating themselves. The Pope himself does not go and just randomly pull a faithful Catholic out and excommunicate them. He doesn't have that authority. Why? Because he can only do what God allows him to do according to God's teachings. If the Pope decides he wants to just go and be an individual and feel that he wants to go his own way and he wants to just start excommunicating everybody, okay, so what? In all seriousness, if the people he excommunicates have done nothing wrong, nothing in contradiction to the teachings of Jesus Christ. In the end, he's the one making the grave sin, excommunicating people, excommunicating folks who were being faithful. Okay, back to papal infallibility and the magisterium, and why do we need this authority who can deem whether someone is excommunicated? They have left the church, and he's just making the official stamp on it, saying, yeah, that dude's totally out of the church. Um, or you can sit there and say, no, that interpretation of scripture is totally false. You can't use that because if you do it, you're actually insulting Jesus Christ. You're insulting Mary. You're insulting the saints, the church. You're denigrating the human potential with grace by making a false interpretation. We can't have that. We have to have 100% truth. That's what the magisterium provides. Now, is the magisterium an act of a pope all by himself? No. The magisterium is an act of God through the medium who is the pope. Can that pope go off base? And ignore the magisterium? Yeah, he can. And we've seen it multiple times, and we're seeing it right now, today. What does that mean? The divine office, the divine institution of the church is from Christ himself, who is perfect. He can make zero errors, nothing whatsoever. He has to do everything perfectly. That means he also has to create a perfect and immaculate church because God is worthy of an immaculate bride. That church, that has to be immaculate in order to be his bride. That means the mystical body of Christ must be immaculate by the end of time. And at the moment, we can say for certain the church triumphant is immaculate, and that is part of the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. We can talk about the church sorrowful, which is being purified, but can never sin again. So those guys are actually doing pretty well, guys and gals in purgatory. And then there's us. We're the ones who still make the mistakes. If there are any blemishes whatsoever that could even be closely attributed to the church herself, it's because of the church militant and our sinful failings. But outside of that, everything about the church is perfect. Now, because the clergy here on earth are part of that church militant, guess what? They have blemishes that are made whenever they sin that the uneducated, the non-Catholics will associate with the church. And even though the church is immaculate, People will think that the church has now gone all wishy-washy and has failed and now requires some sort of reformation, all because they said that a bad pope made a bad statement and they then see that that has to be a bad church. And that's a false equivalency. If a bishop leaves the church, can he still claim to be Catholic? Yes. Does that mean he's still Catholic? No. Let's look at Judas, all right? And Peter. We'll look at the case of Judas and Peter before we go and kind of put a bow on this and wrap it up. Two bishops of the church, very early on, both meeting Jesus Christ in the flesh and seeing him and getting grace directly from the source, the divine God-man, in their presence. And what do they do? Both of them raise people from the dead, miracles galore, heal the sick, they are able to teach the truth that Jesus Christ has given them. This is amazing. Now, what happens at the end of Christ's time here on earth? Well, 
One of them decides to betray Jesus, and the other one decides to deny Jesus. Both of these are grave sins. If you and I do these things, we betray him through our sins and deny him, which is another sin, we have committed grave sins against our Lord, and he's going to be offended. Both Judas and Peter did that. Now, what do we know happens afterwards? Judas commits himself to this notion that he cannot be forgiven because he's done something so serious, keeps it all in him for himself, and then he ultimately dies in this guilt and this denial of Christ's divinity to forgive him. That's bad. Did Judas's sins tarnish Jesus Christ? Nope. Did they tarnish the church? Absolutely not. The church, neither the church nor Jesus, so neither the church nor Jesus were brought down a peg, were at all injured through the acts of Judas Iscariot. And by the same token, we go look at Peter then, and Peter ultimately then denies Christ three times. He ends up with his own situations for sins. But what does he do? He decides instead, maybe I need to go repent. Maybe I need to go and get this all sorted out. And he goes to the Blessed Mother, and he also goes to Jesus finally to repent and ask forgiveness for his sins because he knows God is the only way. And God then forgives him and says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Pretty cool sequence. I believe it's in the Gospel of John. Now, did Peter's sins tarnish Jesus or the church? Again, they did not. But the man himself, as opposed to leaving the seat and never coming back like Judas did, Peter decides to go back to the seat and sit on the seat and assume his role and do what needs to be done for the glory of God in the authority that he was given. All right? And again, even in that chair, would he make mistakes in the future? Yes, he's a man. Like any of us, human being, and the book of Galatians has Paul literally having to correct an error that Peter had made. But did Peter change course and correct it according to what God had taught? Yes, he does. So, magisterium, authentic magisterium of the church, must be in line with the teachings that Jesus Christ has given. So, if a pope makes a statement that ultimately aligns to the timeless traditions and scripture of the church, that statement when given under the following conditions set forth in Vatican I, will be infallible. Now, what are those conditions? Now, the pontiff or Pope alone must make the statement. He has to speak ex cathedra. So he has to say that as part of his office, this statement is going to be made because God has vested in him the supreme apostolic authority and the doctrine is being defined by his words and ultimately, it has to concern faith or morals, and it must be held by the whole church. Okay? It's got to be the pontiff, has to speak ex cathedra, has to concern faith or morals, and it has to be held by the whole church. Uh, a hint here, you can tell he's doing this, that the Pope is making such a statement whenever he says we, or he talks about himself in the plural. When he says we dictate that, that's when you can tell a Pope is being infallible. The last time an infallible statement was officially made and agreed upon by the whole church that this had been made was in 1950, and it was with Pius XII, having to do with the Assumption of Mary. That was the last infallible declaration that was ever made by a pope that was uniformly accepted across the board, hands down. Outside of that, that means we've had, since 1950, we are now here 71 years later, 71 years later, almost 72 years later, and guess what? The only other statement we can even see in 72 years then after he made that statement is maybe one statement from Pope John Paul II regarding no women in 
the Holy of Holies. No women should be serving a mass. Period. Done. That's the only one that even comes close because of the way that the statement was made and what he's talking about. What does that mean? Then it means if I'm going to go look at, say, Pope John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, John Paul the Second, Benedict the Sixteenth, and now Pope Francis, uh, there's a lot of fallible statements in there. And now that means you and I have to be smart enough to delineate between something that is just a random opinion of some dude who's up there who got assigned to be Pope, or it's actually the opinion and the teachings of God, which must be followed to the letter, okay? So, the First Vatican Council sets forth the criteria that define whether or not a statement from the papal office is official. Because again, it's not the man teaching us as much as it is the office teaching us. The man must cooperate with the will of God. So, in the end, it is the Pope in unison with God and his grace in the church teaching something that's infallible. But when he decides to take that union apart, to leave it, to walk off on his own and make a personal opinion because he has some weird inclination... You and I as Catholics don't need to care about his personal inclinations because that has no bearing on our salvation. When we go to our judgment, Christ is not going to sit there and be like, did you do everything that dude told you, even the stuff that was stupid? No, that's not how this works. What will he say? Did you do everything I commanded you? Did you follow everything I told you in scripture and everything in apostolic tradition and everything that had been reaffirmed by my church through my Pope? That's going to be kind of more along the lines of how our judgment is going to look, okay? And Christ doesn't negotiate for us. It's all or nothing. We got to go all in, we commit to him, and we do everything we can to fix it and get it on the right course, or we don't, okay? Papal infallibility is absolutely essential to make sure we all stay in unison on our doctrines, we all understand hierarchies, and we submit to them because that's humility for you and me, and ultimately that uniformity is strength. That becomes rigidity in our doctrines to ensure that you and I will go all the same direction and we're not bouncing off each other and going every which way and then creating all sorts of confusion with false doctrines, all right? So, does that help? I hope it helps. If you have questions, feel free to throw them my way and we'll go from there. I appreciate all the time you've taken with us. Please, if this helps you, smash that like button. Again, subscribe to the channel and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. So thanks again for joining us. May God bless us. The Virgin protect us. And as always, St. Joseph, pray for us. All right. See you later.